And so he put a knife right through this guy. And that, that's how you're going to cop a, a big beef in the joint after coming in with a little one. You're not going to get it for fist fighting somebody. You're going to get it for some serious violence. And it's got to be right in front of God and everyone. So it's a slam dunk when it comes to the court. My theory is, is that these, these gangs are, there's no such thing as a gang. There are different guys, and there's that guy at this particular moment. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're all people, and we all bleed. And, you know, maybe he really doesn't want to get into a, a hardcore knife fight over some bullshit that really doesn't matter. A lot of a lot of gangster time is spent just sitting around waiting for things to happen. Now, if you think about the mob guys, if any mob movie that where real uh, mob guys have been involved, they have long scenes where they're sitting around playing cards. I know they're not really playing cards for money, they're just sort of passing time. guys who are really dangerous, if you want to see what is really dangerous, are the guys that, how to put it, they don't give a, they just don't care. So I'm here with John Abbott, one of our most viral podcast guests. If you've not seen the series of interviews we've done with him, absolutely mind-blowing. John actually was in multiple shootouts, lost his brother in the first shootout that was in America, then on the border with the Canadians, lost his crime partners there, almost lost his own life. So he is hip to understanding not only the dynamics of shootouts, but the sounds, the after effects, the the, the realism. And we're going down a new road today of looking at movie clips. So we're going to put John's experience in the context of these movie clips to determine whether they're realistic, authentic, and so forth. So let's see how this turns out. We're going to start with Heat. You see me doing thrill seeker liquor store holdups with a Born to Lose tattoo on my chest? No, I do not. Right. It's a classic, all-time favorite, you know, Pacino, De Niro. And what's your take on Heat, John? Well, if you're a criminal, you like Heat because these guys are organized, they're tight, they're loyal, and they go after the big jobs and they make the big scores. So most guys who've done crime, the big score is that dream. And very few of them actually make it, but it's a dream that people have in their hearts. And it, it fires them up. Oh, stay down. We want to hurt no one. We're here for the bank's money, not your money. Your money is insured by the federal government. You're not going to lose a dime. The tight sort of um, action and the way it was done. It's an attractive movie. It's, uh, I, was, I was interested. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Today we take delivery of cash from Van Zandt. Then I drop a deposit on Kelso for this bank. Bank, what bank? What about the platinum thing that's ready to fall? That goes to then the bank. What about the shootouts? Well, to be honest, some parts of it stuck in my throat and I just had to shake my head because do you remember there was the uh, escape the bank with all the money and then the big shootout in the street? And they get in the getaway car and they're driving away, and they see uh, the police up ahead blocking off the, the road. And all of a sudden, I'm not sure which guy it was, but he pulls up a, a semi-auto rifle, and just start, it might have been automatic, a full auto, and just starts blasting from inside the car, blowing out the windshield, the front windshield as you're driving. 
And it looks cool. The glass flies all over the place and the guys are shooting. But the fact of the matter is, if you actually did that, you would blow your eardrums out and you'd be deaf for two weeks. And that scene where I think Van Kilmer and uh, Robert De Niro are running up the street tag teaming, shooting at the uh, police behind the cars. They wouldn't, they, nobody would have been able to hear or, see or, or understand anything was being said. So Robert De Niro could have said, go, go, go. And Van Kilmer would have been going, huh? What? What? <laughs> what? Like Twombly in the Black Hawk Down. So, um, yeah, I, they took some liberties with that particular moment. So from your experience then, did you have hearing issues from shootouts and gunfire? Well, this is exactly the thing. One time we were driving um, in Marin County, uh, north of San Francisco, and I just got this old gun, and I didn't know if it shot properly. And I saw this old cow standing in a field, and I pulled down, wound down the window a little, I leaned and, and I fired this 38 long from inside the car. And the noise was just stunningly loud. And my ears blocked. And everybody said, what the f*** are you doing? And I realized, what the f*** was I doing? I mean, uh, you know. And Phil said to me, the farmer's going to be unhappy about that. Luckily, I missed the cow. And the cow just kind of carried on eating, eating his cud. But I was deafened for about two days just from one shot from a 38. So opening fire inside the car without the windows open with an automatic weapon, uh, you'd be at the uh, ear, nose, and throat clinic. Uh, <laughs> Earlier on, you touched on how the big heist, it's like a pipe dream though for a lot of people, isn't it? They're always going to retire off the big heist. Well, the, the trouble is the big heist requires big information. And where are you going to get that information? How do you get this information? just comes to you. This stuff just flies through the air. They send this information out. I mean, it's just beamed out all over the fucking place. You all have to do is know how to grab it. See, I know how to grab it. You know, how do you find out where the $10 million is or the $20 million is? And is it usually from the inside? And where's the, uh, yeah, where, where are the alarm codes? And, and who's going to bring you up to speed on what alarm system is being used? So the problem is... The more tech knowledge you need to know, the more you're showing your hand. Because somebody has to give that to you. And that somebody has to be from the inside. So there's going to be somebody linking you to the job from the inside. And they're always the weak point, right? Because let's say James is working at the alarm car, the armored car company. You know, he might like the idea of being rich, but he sure isn't going to like the idea of spending, you know, 20 years in San Quentin. So when the time comes for the police to put on the screws, that's where the weak point's going to be. And so the big score, you got to be connected in a way to make it work. Do you remember I was telling you about Greg and the armored car robbery to get the plates from the Denver Mint? Now that kind of job. But what happened? You know, Greg and his crew got, you know, laid down in an ambush basically set up by the same guy who, who, who gave them the job. So there are, there are problems with the big score. Anything else to add on heat? Well, I mean, this is a small point, but if anybody goes through Army basic training and the idea of ambushes, the first cardinal rule is you don't set up across from each other if you're ambushing somebody. You set up across from them and open fire, there's a good chance you're going to take each other out. So if you remember Heat, um, Van Kilmer and Robert De Niro are going up the street, but the police who know they've just robbed the bank, the specialist uh, robbery squad, are coming up the street from behind them, firing semi-auto rifles at them, at their backs, as they're going up the street. Now that means those guys... There are about six of them are all firing their ammunition straight at the police who are in the roadblock, right? And that's another thing. You know, if you, if you remember, the reason the police carry shotguns and not automatic rifles usually in the street is because 
one of those automatic rifles, the round might go a mile or two miles. And so in a crowded city, it's bound to hit something. It doesn't just fly off into space. Whereas if you use a shotgun, the round's effective for 50, 100 yards. And you're pretty sure you might break a window, but if you do hit somebody, they could dig the pellets out with, you know, with a spoon. So that scene is like, a, for, for them being the elite tactical squad, that was a, a serious miss on their point, you know, on their side. So I've recently rewatched Shot Caller. It's got a fictionalized Aryan Brotherhood story and a bit of my story as well. The finance guy, he's out celebrating in the beginning, goes through a red light, he's had one too many, kills his friend who's in the back there gets put in and on the first day the new arrivals come in there's like a skinny black guy who looks a bit terrified he gets gang raped in the night and the finance guy decides that's not going to happen to him so if anyone comes at him he's gonna have to show heart well part of the problem i have is that i was in california prison before the era of mass incarceration so the fact of the matter is, a guy like that wouldn't end up on a yard with the AB and with, with serious heavy-hitting gangs. Those guys would be in a, what are called Category 4 yards now, or Category 3. Minimum security, is it? No, the, he, they, would, he, they would end up, he would come into the system in a low-medium because those prisoners, you know, involuntary manslaughter cases, are the most innocent in terms of the guy he's just a regular guy who had a few too many drinks or wasn't paying attention ran over a kid and they're totally unprepared for prison life arizona has whole yards of dui drunk cases now that yeah. they all just go to the same camp and the idea of putting those guys in with the hardened gang members it's um uh, the trouble is that's from the time when i was inside I don't know what happens now, and maybe that is a, an honest reflection of what goes on now. But somehow or other, the police, the police, the prison guards, the administration has a classification uh, criteria. So they just look down your, the list and tick the boxes, gang member, non-gang member, first-time offender. So if you're a first-time offender, white, employed, with family, involuntary manslaughter, you're a good chance you'll go to minimum security right from the start. And you might go to low-medium, like Sierra Conservation Center or Susanville were in those days. So I would again call that as a, I don't know, something doesn't quite ring right with me. Yeah, I agree. Like they're sending all the DUI cases now to these camps to separate them from everybody else in Arizona. Sex offenders have got their own camps. And um, the jail, I'd say, is more transitory. you got a lot of people coming in and out. But then the AB guys, the gang leaders, were being locked down in Supermax these days. Well, even the, even the hardcore predators who would just be out and about in, in level three, level four joints, they, they just chew those guys up. I mean, they're just meat for the grinder. So to throw those guys in, that stockbroker fella, he just, they'd lean on him in two seconds and they'd say, you know, you're bringing us $100 a week. Your, your visitors bring in $100 a week or else. And that would happen to him. And he'd have no time to get tattoos or show how tough he is. Because stockbroker for anybody inside means money, <laughs> you know? And what you want to be in, in the joint is you want to be poor and, and have nothing because then you're not going to attract all that feral attention. So, yeah, they did try and lean on me to get my girlfriend to bring stuff in. But I had Wildman with me, so that was settled. <laughs> so, um, how realistic is it then for this stockbroker guy to rise up and become the shot caller? Well, I, you know, what did he do? He had 
some black guy out of the blue challenged him. Now, why would some black guy out of the blue challenge some white guy that he doesn't know? Wouldn't happen. Hey, man. You know, the black guys know there's a delicate racial balance. So if they're seen just attacking some white guy, then that upsets the balance and the whites have to retaliate. So it's not just you and me. It's there's a whole political balance that's in there. And anyone who upsets the balance is going to get dealt with because then every, the whole yard's going to get locked down. The drugs business is stopped, and that's the absolute priority of the gang. Right. Right. So you're going to be in trouble for starting yeah. shit over nothing. Right. And it's nutter action anyway. Right in front of the guards, you know, you come right out of the gate and have this drama. What's the point? So they did it. Basically, the problem in movies is they have to move the the drama along quickly. So that transition point from normal Mr. Nice Guy into one AB wannabe has to be done fast. Otherwise, the rest of it doesn't happen. And so that was a bit rough, that little bit of transition. They didn't build that properly. Did you see people come in with short sentences and then cop big sentences inside? Well, that would happen. For example, I told you about that um, dining room stabbing where the Viking got a welding rod through the back. And the guy who did it was this skinny little Chicano. And he he was getting out soon. But because the white guy had put pressure on him, the Mexicans came to him, the Chicanos came to him and said, you know, homie, you just got to do this for La Raza. You just have to do it. And, and the bottom line of that is he knows that, that these guys will take him out for nothing. You know, whoever it was, the Emmy, the, the Nestors. And so he put a knife right through this guy. And that, that's how you're going to cop a, a big beef in the joint after coming in with a little one. You're not going to get it for fist fighting somebody. You're going to get it for some serious violence. And it's got to be right in front of God and everyone. So it's a slam dunk when it comes to the court. Jacob. Yeah, I'm a stockbroker from Pasadena. When you come to yard, chow, you take a shit, whatever. You stick to your own race. So what's the solution if someone puts pressure on you to do something like that? Well, my theory is is that these these gangs are there's no such thing as a gang. There are different guys. And there's that guy at this particular moment. So my attitude was you just deal, confront with, or whatever you, however you have to do it, you deal with that particular guy at this particular moment. Make sure you lube up too. You don't want that shit breaking off inside you. The fuck are you looking at the floor for? Is there a problem? Hmm? I get it. You think you're Billy Badass because you put your tips on some fucking toad? Maybe I should get you transferred into my cell. I got an open door policy, bro. Find out how a white boy fights. Would you like to find that we out? We don't have a problem. No problem. And the fact of the matter is, is that we're all people and we all bleed. And. You know, maybe he really doesn't want to get into a, a hardcore knife fight over some bullshit that really doesn't matter. Maybe maybe he wants to sort of, you know, cop some heroin from his girlfriend next Friday and this will knock it right into the park. And so you have to stand up for that particular moment and be fearless. And when these fellas see you're fearless... It's, it's the animal thing, right? It's the animal instinct. You, if you see fear, then you amp up and you double down. But if you don't see any fear, then you think, you know, how badly could I get hurt in this? And is it worth it? And so as long as you can maintain your respect, the key point is, is you can't put it in people's faces. Like, for example, when I had that drama with that AB guy, as soon as it was over, it was over. And I had nothing more to say about it. I never mentioned his name. I never talked about it. It was a no, nothing. I'm not putting his face in it. I'm not going to go around boasting about how I stood this guy down and all this kind of stuff. And some people would, but that's some serious, stupid action. I just count my lucky stars that, it, that neither of us ended up bleeding out. 
because it's a no-win situation. If he wins, I get smashed a bit, stabbed, who knows. But if I win, I catch a beef, maybe my sentence is doubled, I'm suddenly in some maximum, and then all his bros are after me. So, you know. Until an hour before the meet. So explain to me how three different agencies had time to set up and take everyone down. I gave you a gift. And you spit in my face. Another theme of Shot Call then was the family. He, he tells his, you know, his wife and the, and the kid, I, he doesn't exist anymore because he's going all full on into the gang. Did you see that? ever see that kind of thing unfold? Well, the hardcore convicts used to say that. They'd say, you know, just forget about the street because if you don't forget about the street, it's going to be a hard time. So just dump your girlfriend because if you don't dump her, the next time you phone, some other guy will be answering the call, right? And he'll Sancho. be wearing your clothes, right? Sancho, we called him. <laughs> and, you know, whatever happens, you're going to get disappointed. So to avoid that disappointment, to do clean time, so the old convicts would say that. But you often had the feeling they say that because they've been in so long that they don't have any connections on the street anyway. So yeah, the fact is, if you did have somebody coming, you know, suddenly, who knows? You know, you've got money on your books. People are showing up for socials. Somebody slips you, you know, keister some, some drugs, whatever it is. So actually, guys wanted to have visits. But I think that was a kind of way of admitting your reality that you don't know anybody anymore in the street and just making virtue out of it, man. Hope you're enjoying this podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money. The other day, I had to cancel free Amazon Prime memberships. I had a personal on the UK, Amazon, US, Amazon, company account, US, Amazon, UK, Amazon. Do you understand how hard it is to cancel these bloody things? That's why Rocket Money makes these things so much easier, formerly known as Truebill. The app shows all your subscriptions in one place and cancels what you don't want for you. Rocket Money can even find subscriptions you didn't know you were paying for. Just like with me, with my four Amazon Prime memberships, you may find out you've been at least double charged for a subscription. To cancel a subscription, all you've got to do is press cancel and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Get rid of useless subscriptions with Rocket Money now. Go to rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Seriously, it could save you hundreds per year. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Links in the description box. Cheers. Well, let me tell it, Joe. Five guys sitting at a bullpen, San Quentin, wondering how the fuck they got there. What did we do wrong? What should have we done? What didn't we do? Whatever. That, it's your fault, my fault, his fault. All that bullshit. Finally, someone comes up with the idea. Wait a minute. While we were planning this caper, all we did was sit around and tell fucking jokes. So next up is Reservoir of Dogs, the old Tarantino classic. Yeah, that's good. That's what, was good Ed Bunker movie. in that one? Yeah, he was. He was Mr. Blue. The strange thing was, because he was surrounded by actors, they all overshadowed him. He was the real deal. But because they were actors, they were overamping the sort of tough guy look and the hardness whereas he just kind of sat there quietly. And it was, a, it was kind of a curious thing to see, because, you know, that's what actors do, right? They're make-believe emotions. But he didn't have to, Bunker didn't have to make-believe any emotions. He was the real deal. For people who are not familiar with him, then, what was Bunker's history? I think he was an armed robber, wasn't he? Is that? Yeah. 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 He was an old-style, old old-style armed robber. Did he robber. serve in California? Yeah. And that's the reason why Reservoir Dogs, if you know, it's some big, it's either a jewelry store or a bank. I'm not sure. Is it a bank? Jewelry store. Jewelry store. So those are the targets and for the heavy hitters. And he was, that was the world he was in. So that's where that story comes from. 
So um, Bunker, he, he brought some reality to it. But of course, once the Hollywood scene gets into it, then it sort of starts going off on other little tangents, you know. Perhaps one of the most memorable scenes was when they were arguing over whether to give a tip or not. I mean, I'm very sorry the government taxes their tips. That's fucked up. That ain't my fault. I mean, it would appear that waitresses are one of the many groups the government fucks in the ass on a regular basis. Did you think that was realistic? Well, why not? I mean, that's a big issue in America, tipping. I mean, it's, uh, you, either, you either do it or you don't, and it, everybody has good arguments both ways, right? What do you mean you don't tip? They don't believe in it. Shut up. What do you mean you don't believe in it? Come on, you, cough up a bucket, cheap bastard. So, what do you think? A bunch of gangsters arguing over something silly like that. Well, they're fellas. They they got you know they argue about things. You you like uh, the Arsenal and someone else like you know, Manchester <laughs> United, right? I mean, there's different opinions. And also, a lot of a lot of gangster time is spent just sitting around waiting for things to happen. Now, if you think about the mob guys, if any mob movie that where real um, mob guys have been involved. They have long scenes where they're sitting around playing cards. And no, they're not really playing cards for money. They're just sort of passing time. Or the guys sit around and talk about, you know, Languini and, you know, what kind of recipe they use. Because most of the time you're not busting heads and whacking people. Most of the time you're just sitting around. It's like soldiers, you know, at the base. And so, yeah. But you can't be, you know, you know, out making dollhouses in the back back room, right? You've got to be sort of on post, but you're there, so you pass time. I told you I don't know anything about any fucking setup. Mm-hmm. I've been on the force for only eight months. They don't tell me anything. How common is it for criminals to harbor fantasies of doing things to cops? Well, you were a criminal. Did you have any? Oh, when I read the paperwork, what, you know, the detective on my case, he was everywhere, man. He was in the restaurant next to me. He was in the courtroom, all my hearings, and this guy was stalking me. So did you, you harbor any dark fantasies about him? Well, I'm a yoga man now, so <laughs> whatever dark fantasies I may have entertained or just um, to get some pressure out of the system at the time. <laughs> Let's say. Well, I had a perfect, I had a perfect guy I could have harbored dark fantasies about, and that was the guy who capped my brother. But the thing was, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't feel that way about him because I didn't look at him as a guy who intentionally capped my brother. He was doing his job, and he'd been a vet in Vietnam, and we had guns, and we opened fire first, so. In the big picture, what he did was exactly what I would have done. So, you know, a couple of times I thought we could just drive down there and uh, drive by his place. But I thought, you know, what's the point? I mean, one, they'd know I did it and it'd just be endless. And two, it wouldn't have mattered really because whether it was him or another guy or every other member of the police force, Basically, you're not dealing with personal animosity. So, I didn't do that. Who was your favorite character or characters in Reservoir Dogs? Well, I don't, I don't know the actor's name, but he played the guy who uh, brought in the cop, who, who kidnapped him in the car. Michael Madsen. That's it, Michael Madsen. What do you like about him? Well, he, he was... That was the first time that kind of character had ever appeared in a Hollywood movie. And that's one of the reasons Reservoir Dogs was such a groundbreaking, shocking movie that it was. No scene like that had ever happened because usually the police might get shot and he shoot out, but you don't just torture a policeman for pleasure front on in the video. Nobody tells me what to do. You understand? You hear what I said, you son of a bitch? All right, all right, all right. You don't have a boss. All right. And Michael Madison played it. And I've seen guys like that. 
in the joint. Guys that would do anything. They don't, they don't care. I mean, it's just whatever strikes them at that particular moment. You ever listen to Kay Billy's Super Sounds of the 70s? The guys who are really dangerous, if you want to um, see what is really dangerous, are the guys that, how to put it, they don't give a fuck. They just don't care. So you care about your girlfriend and you care about your family and you care about your job and you care about your future. And all these cares act to sort of impede your action and tie you down. But a guy who doesn't give a fuck is completely free in a way. And he's dangerous because he just doesn't care. He can walk straight in your front door and shoot you down with your family in front of everybody. It doesn't matter to him. And those guys are, well, they usually end up in prison or dead. But when you see them in prison, they're the ones you have to keep your eye on. Do you have an example of one of them that you knew? Well, when I first was... um, in the maximum security in Canada, at, at Kent, they put you in these pods. And there were, I think it was six cells, six cells, six, six. I'm not sure the numbers, like 24 guys. And so the first thing I did is I had to look at the other guys in my pod and started putting them in the, in the criteria, in the categories. And so there were sad sack murderers. Some guys killed his wife, you know. And, you know, he cries. You can hear him crying in his cell. And and some guy's right off his head. He's sort of a harmless nutter. I mean, the harmless nutter, he'd he'd gone to sentencing. He was going to get sentenced for five years. And then he went and threatened to kill the judge during his sentencing. Can you imagine? (laughs) So, of course, his sentence got doubled and he ended up in the maximum. He would have for sure gone to the medium or the minimum. It was some stupid-ass property beef. But to threaten to kill the judge at sentencing? Anyway, so I looked at the guys, and I identified two guys who were, like, seriously dangerous. And sure as shit, one of them was the guy who went in with the pipe and smashed up that American, smashed his skull, broke his arms and legs. And the other guy was Dewey Saigo. And he was an Indian, a mukluk, or something from... uh, Olympia in Washington. And Dewey was a, how to call it, he was a child of nature. He didn't think about things. He just did stuff. And whatever Dewey wanted to do at the moment is what he did. So one time he went in um, and took the guards hostage. Just ran into the, to the guards' office, put a knife to their throat, started demanding some hamburgers and ice cream and stuff. And this went on until he got tired and he went to sleep on the couch and the SWAT team came and took him away. And afterwards, somebody in the hole asked him, Dewey, why did you do that? I mean, what was the purpose? Oh, he said it was the afternoon was boring and I wanted to do something, you know. So a guy like that, there's no, there are no brakes, there's no hand brakes, there's no foot brake, right? He just, whatever strikes him at the moment is what he does. So I had time for Dewey. He couldn't read very well. So whenever they gave him, you know, messages or letters or whatever from the office administration, I'd explain what it was for him. And this actually worked out well for me because later on, this uh, old Indian who used to be a hitman for the Vancouver mob, he he was the one who orchestrated that hit on the uh, American. And he sort of started... um, he liked instigating, particularly natives, because he was native. And so he came to Dewey, and he said to Dewey, he says, why don't you just put a put a knife in his liver? Because I was out playing football, and he, he was standing with Dewey. Now, Dewey just said, well, do it yourself, and walked away. But Dewey actually came over later and, ex- and explained to me what had happened. And so, yeah, it was an example of, when you go into the prison, you have to identify who the dangerous people are and either keep your eye on them or, you know, establish friendly relations with them. It's a, it's a matter of serious politics. 
So what do you think about Harvey Keitel in Reservoir? Well, Harvey was the, the character who I had the most problem with because he's set up to be an old-time friend who's done a number of different jobs with, with um, the old boss. Now, the old boss was a real old criminal, wasn't he? Giggling like a bunch of young bros in a schoolyard. He was a famous old criminal from the movies in the 50s and 60s. Anyway, and Harvey Cattell knew these guys, had been working for them. And then suddenly, the guy who, who he's running with who gets shot, who he takes back to the warehouse, who's bleeding out on the ground, and clearly he's not going to make it. Suddenly his loyalty flips over and he's protecting this guy, who turns out to be, I think, a police, undercover police officer. And suddenly he's, it seemed like a manufactured, you know, where you have to make something change in the plot. Because he couldn't just let these guys go down the road as they were. There had to be some kind of dramatic finish. You know, like in uh, Hamlet, Shakespeare didn't know how to end Hamlet. So his traditional way of ending the plays that he didn't know how to end was everybody just slaughters each other. Don't make me do this. There's just a, a, a massacre at the end, and then the play ends. And so that's what happens in Reservoir Dogs. So I think everybody but... Um, Bashemi. Bashemi, yeah. Steve Bashemi. Mr. Pink. Yeah, he, he, he doesn't get away. They, you know, shouts and screams outside and gunfire, but he survives it. But this idea that they would all kill each other, all these... Like, when you're someone's your crimey, your life is in his hands and his life is in your hands. And once you go through those kind of situations together, you establish a special bond of trust and loyalty. And I imagine it's like soldiers in the field who've been through combat. And so the idea that you would just dump that for some guy who you just met who was bleeding out anyway and wasn't going to make it, I, I, it, 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 it seemed a bit rough in terms of plotting, you know. Anything else with Reservoir? Oh no, I liked it. It was uh, it was a good film. I, uh, it, the interesting thing about it is they play the whole thing inside a warehouse and manage to keep your interest, aside from a few you know flashbacks. But yeah, and of course the other interesting thing which I liked is that um, Tarantino didn't have any women in it. It was a man's world. So women appear as, you know, the sort of obscene chatting they were having about women in the beginning at the table, right? And then one of the characters, Steve Madsen, I think it was, just, no, it was Steve Buscemi who drags some woman out of a car and just throws her on the ground, steals her car. But he, he didn't have any women in it. Now, I can't stand watching these movies nowadays since about the last 10 years where the heroes, the tough guys, have to be women. I just can't watch it because it just doesn't work in real life that way. There's a famous Japanese story where um, the samurai had lost the battle and the messenger came riding into the castle and these women who'd been practicing martial arts decided to go out and fight the invaders. And so about 100, 200 of these women rode out on horses with spears and bows and arrows and all the rest. And the enemy slaughtered them to a woman in about five minutes, just chopped right through them like a sigh, cutting wheat. So the idea of the tough girl, you know, villainess, bad girl with the swords or the guns or whatever it is, it's just comic book stuff. It's, it's a woke thing, isn't it? And now there's a movement against it, but that's definitely going to get the comments going because it's very topical right now. All right, so, Blue Velvet. This was a bizarre movie, wasn't it? Oh, it was great. I Where enjoyed he's that one. Peeping actually. at the woman and comes yeah. in with his 
What's he breathing there? Some kind of poppers or something? He's like, Emil Nitrate, wasn't it? And his eyes are going red. Yeah. And he's like, show me up. Show me up. Show me up. And the weird people of the night. That, yeah. Yeah. Oh, it was good. I'll never forget it. Yeah. Yeah, it was good. Uh, why are there people like Frank? Why are there? Why are there people like Frank in this world? Yeah, Frank was a good character there. Yeah. He had the situation underhand. And, uh, yeah, no, no, it was, it, it was, uh, it was, was that a Cronenberg film? David Lynch. Oh, David Lynch. So he's got a good distorted view of the world. Twin Peaks. Yeah. I love the way it started too. What was it? The ants eating somebody's ear there in the grass. So that grabs your attention. You see? You want something that's going to grab people's attention from Jump Street. And that certainly did. And the gangsters, there was kind of a loose uh, sort of Elvis Presley kind of wannabe drug dealer. He was some kind of selling speed or meth or whatever it was, right? He was great. (laughs) So, yeah. It It was shocking because it was new and it had... And a lovely contrast with the um, sort of white bread suburban Main Street. I mean, the goofy guy who was the, what would you call him, a voyeur a lot of the time. Hello, baby. Shut up! It's daddy, you shithead! Where's my bourbon? And his girlfriend, who was just kind of... uh, so Girl Scouts Airhead. It was a lovely... Who, who played the one? Was it Isabella Rosalini? Is that yeah, that's the one. Yeah. And she played a great fem- fantastic, fantastic right? wasn't yeah. she? Yeah, when she suddenly throws herself on the guy in front of his girlfriend and his mom naked. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it was a, I enjoyed the... You know, they took... You, wouldn't, you, you can't complain about that film about not being realistic because the whole thing wasn't realistic. It wasn't trying to be. When we wake up in the morning, we get out of bed, and we start our day with Koro Snacks. Koro is a healthy snacks brand focusing on bringing additive-free natural ingredients to their customers with fair prices in bulk packaging. They have everything from nut butters to free-from-baking ingredients to cooking essentials and, of course, the snacks. These Syrian pumpkin seeds from Koro are amazing. I have them on my cheese on toast every morning. You've been getting into them, Jen? Yes, and all the health benefits it brings. <laughs> Lashings of them. Right. Pop this in the oven then. So what makes Coro special in comparison to others? Coro cares about sustainability. Their bulk packs save on packaging material compared to small single packs. For a 5% discount on Coro's products, use the code TRUECRIME with no space in between true and crime. The link to Coro's online shop is in the description box on YouTube. Thanks for supporting our sponsor. Dark. Let's fuck! I'll fuck anything that moves! <laughs> so, you know. What about the killings in that one? Well, killings, what happened? Basically, Frank killed everybody. Well, they had a nice machine gun shootout with the police there at the end. Um, once the machine guns start going... Basically, everybody gets shot because so many bullets are flying around, they can't help but hit somebody. So they all ended up in the morgue. But uh, Frank, he got a bit full of himself there, didn't he? The whole movie just amped up, didn't it, as soon as Frank <laughs> entered it? Yeah, well, he's, he's a good actor, right? He's, uh, he, he played that well. And, of course, he was doing his, his poppers, right? And then um, I think the the goofy kid shot him from the closet or something like that. Yeah, I, I don't mind Blue Velvet. It's uh, it's pretty. It's stylistic. Call it that way. So. Charlie Varick? Charlie Varick. Yeah. Charlie Varick. Yeah. So, what's your thoughts of Charlie Varick? Well, Charlie Varick is the critics like it, but it's basically been forgotten now. 
it's a sort of 19, mid 1970s gangster film. And it, it features these uh, just small town robbers who, a guy and his wife and some other guy. Um, the guy who plays the other guy is interesting because he's the psycho in Dirty Harry. I think it was the only other film he ever got. Anyway, he, um, they rob some sleepy small town bank and they're hoping for 20 grand or something, you know, 10 grand, 15, whatever, because Charlie has a crop dusting company with one plane and he's going bankrupt and he wants to do something about it. But it turns out that the bank is actually a pit stop for uh, mob money lending and mob money transfers and money laundering. And so they, they end up with hundreds of thousands of dollars that they've ended up stealing from the mob. And the mob, they're very cool. They just, they don't send, you know, carloads of sort of uh, sleazy-looking Italian mobsters. They just send one guy after him. And this guy is like the Terminator. He just, he just marches through situations. And he's about 6'6 six, six and just beats people into dust if he has to. But he's kind of stylish. He smokes a pipe and just kind of well-dressed and, you know, carries on. And so you have these, you have this contrast between the inexorable figure of doom who's coming and then sort of, you know, Walter Matthau is this sort of hangdog, middle-aged looking guy. He's not physical. He doesn't have a big presence. His wife has been killed at the robbery. And then his partner gets Yancey and wants his money now and freaks out. And he ends up getting beaten to death by the, the Terminator, the, uh, the hitman. And then it's just Charlie. And so Charlie has to be, and he's like every man. And the reason it's, it, it, it appeals to you because it's like, it's like what would an average person do when faced with somebody like that, a trained killer coming for you? Not only a trained killer, but a smart trained killer who knows what he's doing. And so Charlie, I won't spoil it for people, but uh, Charlie has to work out a solution. And he does it by playing, basically, the extent of the weakness turns into his strength. Did you watch it? No, but there's a parallel in California when Jimmy the Weasel... And Charlie Batts Battaglia took out the two Tonys who were on a robbing rampage and had robbed some mafia-backed places and the order came down from the top to take them out. That's, that's what it reminded me of as you've been describing it. Jimmy the Weasel Fretiano. Did you come across Yeah, well, Phil, story? Was, Phil was somehow linked with that group. I'm not, I never found out exactly how, but he was. He used to do work for them, so... I remember hearing that name. Not not Charlie Batts, but the other fellow, Jimmy the Weasel. I think it was the Batts' first whack, because I wrote the life story for a guy called Two Tonys who came up under Batts, and by the time he met Batts, Batts had left stiffs from coast to coast and never got caught, and he was a professional. But apparently the Two Tonys was the first whack for the Batts, and he was nervous, and the Weasel was telling him, you know, you got this is how you do this, and, you know. Made sure he put some slugs in him. Well, yeah, that's once you've done that, you sort of sealed the the bond, right? If you haven't done that, then there's always a question. So, so how does Charlie Varick compare to like Goodfellas, Casino? Well, you know, it's 1970s production, so it's not going to appeal to people these days. But it's actually pretty engaging, and you know. The actors are not bad, so I, I, uh, I, I have a, a sort of soft place in my heart for it because it's uh, it's an older movie, but yeah, it's not that bad. It's the, the thing is, mo- gangster movies now, it's become very stylized and very overproduced. You know, uh, you see some directors that started out with promise, and it becomes so stylized and overproduced. It's almost like a cartoon. Yes, it becomes a cartoon. That's what happened to Tarantino. He just went off the deep end, right? Because basically what happens is there's nobody to call you on your bullshit, so you just do whatever strikes you at the moment as you're snorting all that cocaine, right? No more. 
the fuck oh, 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 So in Dog Eat Dog, there's the theme of villains turning on each other. Well, that's a. I have a feeling that the reason um, Hollywood likes that theme is because the bad guys are supposed to go down. That was always, certainly in the 40s and 50s and into the 60s, the bad guys always went down. Then the bad guys became a bit more, entered a more gray area. But that thieves fall out, that theme, um, how to put it, it's an attractive one because it's a good way of, of ending the movie uh, and, and having people have a good feeling that there's not people like that, uh, that, they, that their evilness just overwhelms them and they end up taking each other out. But the fact is it's not like that. Those guys, how to put it, those dogs... The, the people they're closest to are the other dogs. They're like bonded because they, they have the same relationship with society. They've been in prison or they've been in group homes or in Tracy. And they have a, a sort of a common, they have a lot of common ground. And they have a lot in common. So I'd say those bonds are actually stronger than what Hollywood would, would think they were. These guys can go for decades working with each other, you know. Uh, of course, it's a different thing if they're, you know, the police are interrogating them and they're looking at a hundred years in prison. But I, that's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be pushing that that theme too hard. What about the picaresque theme then, the lovable rogue? Well, that's a, a really popular one, and generally, it, it's based in the fact that girls like rogues, right? And the reason they like rogues is because to be a rogue. You have to be. Sh- you have to show some strength, and you show strength because you're not just following, like all the other sheep in the yard. And you're also you're making your own choices. You're independent. You're not boring. The girl doesn't know what you're going to do next, and that adds an extra sort of like feeling of uh, you know, frisson or something. So. That's, um, and also the average people, you know, if you just work in the mill, I worked in the mill when I was, what, 17, 18 at the, at the, uh, lead, lead refinery. And my job was, there were copper bars would come out. And then I had to fold the lead over the copper bar and put it on the, on the trolley with all the other ones. And then somebody came and pushed that to the acid bath where they were put in to catalyze pure lead. And that's all I did for eight hours a day. That was my job. I was a human robot, a piece in the machine. And so the idea that that's, that's life, that that's enough, that, that, you know. I mean, I'd rather be living a life of crime than doing that. So I think the same is true for a lot of people. I mean, unless to, to accept a job like that, you'd have to be totally beaten down, not, you know, a young 18-year-old guy just sort of heading into life, right? What about in Drive, the hammer threat? <laughs> Don't worry, they're going to come get it. No, no. Call them. Well, I, for me, the thing with Drive, which I, I was surprised at, was, do you remember he, what's that, Ryan Gosling? He, um, he refused to participate in anything except driving. I don't sit in while you're running it down. I don't carry a gun. I drive. Now, I don't know. Are there people like that? I never ran into anyone like that. If you joined the crew, you were up for whatever was being done. There's nobody saying, I'm not part of this, or I'm just a driver. So I, it, it struck me as kind of, I mean, you wouldn't hire a guy like that, because if he's just a driver, what? You know, somebody comes to cap you, and he's just a sit and watch? <laughs> so, I don't know. 
And anyway, everybody knows how to drive. So is that such a big deal? I used to have a guy called, we called him Mr. Wolf. He was on meth all the time. And if someone needed driving somewhere, we... <laughs> you call Mr. Wolf. That's, that's all he could do. That was... Wasn't that what they called uh, that Harvey Cartel, Cartel yeah. character? Yeah, Pulp Fiction, was it? Pulp Fiction, yeah, Mr. Yeah. Wolf. So we've got Point Blank being shot at the beginning, the double cross. Well, you know, it's a classic situation, isn't it? Well, his, oh, the, the thing is, it's his wife. His wife is fucking his partner, yeah. and they set him up and shoot him. The problem with those kind of stories is, do you know, do you notice in Hollywood movies, guys who get shot, there's two options. One, they're killed, or two, they make a miraculous recovery, and they're fine. Now, the fact is, if you get drilled seriously through the body, you've got permanent life-damaging injuries. Very few people are like complete recoveries. Do you, do you remember there was that um, shootout in Los Angeles? They called the 45 minutes of in Hollywood. There's a video on YouTube. Basically, two guys, two weightlifters who are high on steroids and meth decided to rob a bank, and they totally dressed up in, in, in armor, like bulletproof armor, and carried automatic weapons. Seen it. And like, like sort of robots marched along. They were so slow carrying this armor. <laughs> and the police came, and they shot it out with the police until they got shot to pieces. But they clipped about, they didn't kill anybody, but they clipped about eight policemen. Now, I think out of those eight policemen, six of them retired with injuries, and the other two were on desk work from thereafter. So if you get shot through and through with a weapon, um, or if you get hit, like for example, Van Kilmer and Heek gets hit at close range by a high caliber semi-auto rifle, and you just have a nice little hole in your arm, now, the fact is that that range, the, the round might just tear his arm right off, totally shatter it to pieces. It's an amputation job. So, they, in point blank, why wouldn't they just put one through his head? Why would, after they shot him twice and he's on the ground, why not just walk over and make sure one through his head? Of course, that kills the whole movie. The same way, this... I can't stand it. Do you know the scene that you've seen a hundred times where the, the hero, someone sticks a gun in his back and then they tie him up and he's sitting on the chair and then they all go outside to uh, play pinochle or, you know, go for a drink. And he, uh, you know, kicks over the knife that somebody left on the floor and, you know, that cuts the rope and escapes. Well, you know... I can tell you, in any robberies we did, nobody escaped. You know, have you ever heard of glass fiber tape? It's uh, fiberglass-backed packing tape. And you wrap someone up like a mummy with that. There's no getting away. So, I can't stand watching that one where, you know, the bad guys allow the guy. Do you remember um, uh, the last Boy Scout? Bruce Willis by the pool. Famous scene where he kills the guy with the strike under the nose, drives his nose into his brain. Anyway, he's supposed to be, they're supposed to be the bad guys, and he's just sitting there smoking cigarettes. I mean, you know, why isn't he just hogtied on the ground, totally incapacitated? So whenever I run into that scene, I just go, oh, no, not this again. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure some people do get away like that. I actually know a story. Um, Harvey Hammerbeck, this uh, robber I knew, went to do a jewelry store in West Sacramento. And he needed some accomplices. So we went down to this uh, speed freak house and just grabbed three or four guys there. These nutters, these freakers on speed. And he just told one guy, you sit in the car and when we come out, you drive away. And you guys just stand there and, you know, I'll do the robbing. So they went in and they robbed the place. But Harvey, he'd been clipped in the leg in another robbery. So he was like um, hobbling along a bit. Hop along, Cassidy. Anyway, one of the speeders tied up the manager with masking tape. 
do you know, masking tape, paper tape, like about three or four strands around his arm. Obviously, he'd been watching movies. That's enough. No, you just go like this with masking tape and you're through. So as they're going out, the manager reaches in, grabs a 45 out of the desk and starts blasting. As soon as he starts shooting, the speed freaks just freak out and just run like rabbits. The driver just takes off. And there's Harvey in the mall. All his crime partners have just run off in all different directions. And he's got all the jewelry and the gun and he's hobbling along. And there's his getaway car driving off out of the parking lot. So there's a case where the guys used masking tape to tie up somebody. So huge thank you, John, for your expert opinion on these. Oh, I don't know how expert it is. but um... <laughs> If you enjoyed this format, we are branching out, going down new roads. Let us know in the comments. And also, if you've got any questions for John or any movies you would like to see John take a look at and comment on, put them down there and we'll see what we can do. So thanks for watching. Cheers.